right, team. Welcome back to the Man Talk Show, or welcome to the Man Talk Show for the first time if this is your first ever episode tuning into. My name is Connor Eaton, and this podcast is dedicated to the betterment of men. It's meant to be about men, from men, and for men to help you be a better father, husband, business leader, entrepreneur, or just better in your own personal health, finances, and mindset. So I bring in some exceptional guests, and today is certainly one of those exceptional guests. So joining me is Ron Williams. Now, just to give you a sense, before I read off his formal bio, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what Ron has done in his life. Okay, ready for this? Ron is a seven-time Mr. Natural Olympia, a seven-time Mr. Natural Universe, a seven-time Natural World. He has been inducted into the INBA Hall of Fame in 2008, and he's a best-selling author of a book called Faith and Fat Loss. Uh, he also patented a, uh, a workout device called the Iron Chess Master. And so Ron is one of the single most decorated bodybuilders, natural bodybuilders in the world, in history, uh, having achieved the highest honor ever awarded in natural bodybuilding by becoming the sole recipient of the Natural Bodybuilder of the Decade Award. As a 21-time world champion, he's leveraged 40 years of experience to develop transformational processes to help men, really, to help build champion men. And so I could tell you more about him. I think one of the main things that I want to just share with you is that this isn't just about mastery and dedication and discipline. We, we do get into some of those things. It's also not necessarily about bodybuilding, um, while we touch on that briefly. What it's primarily about is how we as human beings can experience tremendously hard times in our life and alchemize those periods of our life into something deeply meaningful. So Ron, as a child, grew up in Indianapolis. He grew up in, in the ghetto. He talks a little bit about that. And at three years old, he was dropped off at a babysitter's home and neither one of his parents ever came back to get him. So he was abandoned early on and really went through the, the sort of system, the adoption system, the, you know, the youth home system, and was seen as a, a quote-unquote street kid. So you know, he really had a, a tough childhood, lots of abuse, lots of abandonment. And so we talk about this concept of post-traumatic growth, how we can experience something very traumatic in our lives and that that can eventually, in some ways, if we pay attention, if we work on it, can turn into something that not only lights a fire under us, but can help us to really produce, build, create, uh, experience, and achieve some phenomenal things. So Ron does an incredible job of sharing a good amount of his life, his journey. We talk about this concept of post-traumatic growth, and we get into some of what he attributes to his achievement and his success. And we talk about what mastery means to him and how the everyday person like me <laughs> and like us can achieve uh, some level of mastery. So I hope that you enjoy this episode and this interview. Please do share this conversation with somebody that you know will enjoy it. Man it forward to somebody in your life. Uh, we have grown tremendously this year because of you, because of you sharing the show. And so I really appreciate it. And on that note, I want to celebrate. We are in the top 1% of podcasts globally, which blows my mind. <laughs> the Man Talk Show is a top 1% show. We are consistently in the top 75 to 100 uh, podcasts, specifically in the category of relationships. 
And so that's not because of me. We've never done any traditional marketing. That is all because of you and your support and the community that is out there that tunes into these shows, that shares these conversations. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart because I put a tremendous amount of work into this. And this is my passion. I have such a fire for this. So thank you. And without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Ron Williams. All right, Ron, welcome to the Man Talk Show. How are you doing today? Hey, man, I am doing so awesome. I'm glad to be here with you, actually. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Well, unbeknownst to the audience, this is our our second attempt, which feels like a joy. I get to talk to you again. And last time was like my own private conversation with you, which is wonderful. <laughs> we had some we had some technical issues in the first go around for the for the audience, just so that everybody's filled in. But I really enjoyed just getting a chance to speak with you. You've done some absolutely incredible things in your life and overcome some really massive challenges that I think a lot of people will just appreciate hearing in your story because you know we all face these types of obstacles. So with all that said, just to be your own sort of hype man on the show before we begin, <laughs> uh, I'm going to start with the question that I start with with every guest, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Okay. I thought of a, of, of a few things, but I guess one of the most defining things that happened to me in this journey is walking away from the ghetto. You know, I can remember the day. I can remember the hour. I mean, you know, the time of day it was. It was actually at night. I walked away from the ghetto. And when I walked away, man, I walked away from all of it. I walked away from the mentality. I walked away from the dress, the speech, all of it. And I had to get to the place where I was sick and tired and I couldn't handle it anymore. I would have rather died than to stay in the situation that I was in. And I walked away and um, people would always tell me, oh, he'll be back. But mm, never went back, man. And I learned that in order to really change you have to change your environment because you become a product. I mean, when you hear that, it almost sounds cliche. You become a product of your environment. And until, and, and, and being in the ghetto, it's one thing to get out of the ghetto, but it's another thing to get the ghetto out of you. So I had to, you know, work mm-hmm. towards changing my mentality uh, because wherever you go, that your mind is always there. So, yeah, that, was, that would be a real defining moment for me. When you talk about growing up in the ghetto, and I, I really appreciate the distinction there of like, you know, you can get out of the ghetto, but you have to get the ghetto out of you. It's very, very interesting way to put it. Can you describe what that environment is like? Because I think, you know, for someone of my, like myself that grew up in, you know, Northern Alberta in, in Canada, I, I don't really have a lot of context for what that environment is like. And so I, I don't know if you're open to just sort of sharing what was your life like? You know, what were the early days of your life like within your family environment, within your, within your friend circles? And what would you say are some of the sort of distinctive markers or mentalities that are prevalent within, within that environment? Okay. Uh, one thing I want to say this to preface that I think my, what I do today started way back. I was being prepared when I was three years old for what I do today. And what actually happened with me is I was born to two individuals that never got married. My mother was 14 years old and my father was 28 years old and they had a baby. And my mother was just a little girl trying to take care of a baby. 
And so she ended up, um, they ended up giving me away and giving me away and being tossed around from one household to the next in the ghetto. So really I was under the ghetto because I never really had family culture. And, you know, there's so much that's learned in family culture. You learn how to communicate. You learn how to interact with people. And I never learned or developed those skills. I don't remember having a toothbrush until I was 18 years old, man. So even that, you know, getting in the habit of brushing my teeth, I had to learn that. That's a learned skill. And um, some things that comes first nature to people. I had to learn those concepts and communication was a real hard one for me. I was touched in a way a child should never be touched repetitively, uh, given liquor and spin around in the circle to see the drunk kid uh, stagger and fall down, you know, uh, kicked out of school. Nobody ever there to to really uh, take up for me. Uh, so many things. I had a bike, man. Uh, one of the things I remember I had a bike that had no tires, but it had rims and wheels and I could ride it, man. I didn't realize that takes skill to be able to do that. And was beaten a lot all the time. So when I went from one house to another, I never really settled in because uh, I didn't know what uh, what was going to take place here. Was this going to be a family that was going to touch me in the wrong way? Was this a family that was going to beat me? Should I talk? Should I not talk? So I kind of sat back in the corner. And all of those things, man, I had to learn how to come out of those things. Most people that grew up like me, they had at least one somebody in their life. They came from a single parent home or they had a sibling, somebody that was there with them. But um, to be honest with you, I would have to say I was all alone, not realizing that God would use this situation later on in life because I learned so many things of what other people go through. I had kids before uh, because sex became a real part of my life before I was, you know, before I was seven or eight years old. So sex became a thing for me. I had kids before I was 17, 18. I mean, I had six kids, man. And um, I just had to get out of this thing. The girls in the ghetto, the speech in the ghetto, the, the, you know, everything about it, I had to get away from it. And I had to learn to hate it. Because any part of the ghetto, it's like a vacuum. If you like any of it, it's like a vacuum and it'll suck you back in, man. So I had to get to the place where I hated it all. And so I left, uh, quit everything and just dropped everything. And I left Indianapolis, Indiana and moved to Salt Lake City, Utah. And God completely turned my life around and started using some of those, those negative, painful things that I went through to not only bless me, but to be a blessing to other people. Hmm. I appreciate you sharing a lot of that. I mean, we could, you know, sort of traverse some of those pieces in depth. You know, I think a lot of people, a lot of people have struggled with some form of abuse or abandonment or neglect, you know, in their past, but it, it does sound like you experienced a tremendous amount of that for really the first however many years of your life, you know, a very formative period of your life. So when you when you moved away from Indianapolis, how, how old were you? When I really moved away, moved to Salt Lake City, I was uh, close to 28 years old. Close to 28 wow. years old. Yeah. Uh, never experienced going to jail. Not because I didn't do anything wrong, just didn't get caught. 
<laughs> I hear you on that front. Yeah. <laughs> I've told many stories on here of like running from the cops on my motorcycle and, <laughs> you know, just doing dumb things. But okay. So I want to circle back on this in a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit more about that trajectory. So what led you like fill in the gaps a, a little bit? You you grew up in this environment. You experienced a tremendous amount of abuse and, and neglect and and not having real connections. How the hell do you go from that to seven-time Mr. Natural Olympia, seven-time Mr. Natural Universe, seven-time Natural World? Like That, to me, seems like the biggest bridge and jump. And so I'd love for you to just fill in to the, for the audience like what are some of the things that pointed you towards some of the success that you've had and some of the capacity that you've had to to achieve greatness in in some capacity well there are there are a lot of elements i think that fall into to play here but one thing is i had to realize that more is less and less is more and the pain and the passion became my driving force what most people don't realize when they see my my titles, they don't realize that what it required to get those titles was acquired by the pain and suffering that I went through. Because what it did, it developed the ability to suffer and uh, it developed the ability to embrace pain rather than run away from it. I used to get beaten. Mm. And um, when I was beaten, the thing that they wanted from me was my tears. I realized that. Now, no matter what, I was going to be beaten, but I didn't have to cry. So <laughs> I learned how to win by saying, they're going to beat me anyway. I know what it is to be beaten. I know what the pain is like. The only thing, the only way I can win is I'm going to be beaten. The only way I can win is not to cry. And so my tear ducts mm-hmm. dried up, man, and I couldn't cry. Uh, and that happened when I was about 13. But I would manage pain. I, would, I, I played four sports on an international level before I was 20. One of the sports was track. Uh, I'm a 100-yard and 200-meter sprinter. But I would win races that I was never supposed to run. Example, the 400-meter. When you get to the 300-meter mark, that's when the monkey jumps on your back, the pain starts, and it's hard to finish the race. So the idea, I'm going to tell this real quick. The idea is to to keep up, to run as fast as you can for 300 meters. And whoever had the most gas left, they would win at the end. But with me, it was very different. When the pain got, when the pain started is when I turned on all of my energy, all of my force. I knew that my ability was in managing pain better than the next person. So if I could keep up with you for the first 300 yards, that's when I would start running. That's when I would start sprinting. Instead of slowing down, trying to make it through the wire, I would manage the pain. And all it was, was 10 to 15 seconds. If I could manage this pain for that long, I could start winning. And so I learned how to win, man, and I never stopped. I won over 250 natural bodybuilding titles, but 21 of those were world championships. So um, I learned how to manage the pain, make pain a friend. And I learned that more is less and less is more. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that because I think that's such an important context. And, you know, I, I'm not sh- not sure if you're familiar with somebody like David Goggins, but it, I mean, he's a 
maybe a little bit more of a, a crude version in some ways. He's done some incredible things, but it, it's interesting because I think that so many people that do outstanding things somehow turn their trauma into something meaningful. You know, I think one of the things that came to mind immediately when I read about your story and I was researching you and your past and your upbringing and and your accomplishments and and who you've become as a man, what popped into my head is this concept of post-traumatic growth. And, you know, we often talk about in our culture, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and how we, we really collapse under the weight of the trauma that we've experienced. And that trauma becomes to inform who we are. But what we don't often talk about are the outliers, the people who experience a tremendous amount of growth, a tremendous amount of trauma, sorry. And then that trauma becomes the thing that propels them into some incredible, incredible feats. And it, what's interesting is that when you really research post-traumatic growth, syndrome, what you start to see is that something within individuals, rather than feeling completely helpless to the trauma or overpowered by the trauma or you know whatever the case may be, these individuals uh, like yourself take that trauma and almost like point the pain or the suffering towards something. And so I don't know if I'm describing that properly. I don't know if you've ever considered that you're somebody that that it really embodies this notion of post-traumatic growth. But I would love to get your take on it because it really seems like you're one of these rare examples of somebody who experienced something that would cause the majority of people to, uh, to go into severe addiction or you know, incarceration. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, there's just so many examples of men who experience what you experience and, and they, they don't make it you know, in, in many ways, shape or form. They just don't make it. So I would love to hear your thoughts on on that and this this notion of post-traumatic growth. Well, to be honest with you, I would like to say I'm this great guy that was able to overcome this. I would like to say all that, man, but I, but be, to be completely transparent, man, there, there were so many years I was suicidal. I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to die. I wanted the pain to stop. And, you know, I almost died 13 times, not at my own hands, but... Uh, partly because of things that I was doing. And I remember the, uh, this one particular day where I decided I wasn't going to try to kill myself anymore. I had a, a friend that lived next door. He fell out of an apple tree. He was probably 20, 30 feet in the air, fell out of the apple tree on his head, and he fell on a rake. And back in those days, mm-hmm. they didn't have those flimsy aluminum Plastic. rakes. They had the hard yeah. rakes that was, you know, was it with a hook. And he fell on it, and I saw the rake. Uh, three of the heads of the rake was in his head. And I thought, my friend's going to die. He didn't die. But what happened is it was a tremendous amount of brain damage. He was in a wheelchair, and he just wasn't the same anymore. So I thought, man, I'll try to kill myself, and I'll end up like that. I don't want that. That'll be even worse. So that was one of the things that, that kind of curbed me from wanting to kill myself at a young, young age. But that slowly came back when I got older. Uh, but I was so, so much a loser at so many of the things I did. I, I figured that I wouldn't be successful even at trying to kill myself. So I say all that to say the post-traumatic growth, I believe that is a real thing. Eventually, that's what happened to me. Uh, but when God came in and changed, helped me to change my thought process, I will have to say I made some really, really bad decisions. 
But this was one of the best decisions that I made because it was the, it was the point where my mindset started to change. And I know this, that you, you've heard this before, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And I learned that you can change a lot of things. You can change your shoes, you can change your house, you can change your clothes, and it doesn't give you much significance in change. But when you change your mind, you change your life. And when I changed my mind, my life changed. And what I found out in that is that if you don't like what your life is producing, change your mind. Change your mind in whatever area that's in, and it'll change your life. You heard me say, um, more is less and less is more. What I had to do is I was walking around with too much garbage, and I had to, um, I had to become less. And when I say that, uh, it's like gold in the fire. You put the gold in the fire, it burns out all the dross. I had so mm. much unforgiveness, so much pain, so much, so much garbage that I was holding on to, wanting to pay this person back, wanting to pay that person back. I was the victim. I had to come away from that victim mentality and begin to release these people in my life. It was more for me than for them. I thought, I, I'll hate them until I die and I'll never forgive them. It was destroying me inside out. So when I began to forgive them, I let all the bad go, but I held on to the good. The good was how to manage pain. The good was, man, I wasn't built to break. I can, I can take a lot and still not break. And so that gave me a sense of confidence that regardless of what I went through, I could overcome this thing. I am a winner now. Mm. <laughs> That's, uh, it's, it's so good, man. I mean, as, you, as you said, I could just like, I feel like you need a, a t-shirt. I don't know. I think you maybe should sell some swag, Ron, with a t-shirt that says, I am not built to break. You know, I think that that's, <laughs> It's so, I mean, it's, it's so good. I love this notion of ch- changing the mind. I think that's, that's good. And to, to clear out the garbage, I've used the analogy of like, you know, on your computer, every once in a while, you have to go through and defrag the hard drive, right? Yeah. And sort of clear out all the nonsense that's on your computer because it bogs it down. And I think within our, within our internal ecosystem, our heart, our mind, our soul can carry a tremendous amount of weight because we have been carrying around stories, beliefs, hatred towards other people who have harmed us for so long. And that just eats up cognitive, emotional, spiritual bandwidth that depletes us, you know, that, that causes us to feel like it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. Absolutely, man. Yeah, I would love for you to talk about one thing because I've worked with men for over a decade now from all over the world. And I think one of the most interesting things that I have started to come across is this notion that so many men have zero understanding of how to forgive. And it really is, is creating a, a massive blockage within their heart and within their lives and within their relationships. And, and I was one of those men, right? Just to be clear, I had no idea how to forgive people in my past and the things that had happened to me and how to forgive the you know, terrible decisions that I had made towards myself. And so I'm, I'm deeply curious about how did you begin to go about this, this journey of forgiveness and, and what do you think forgiveness is and, and what are some of the core key steps that you took towards forgiving the people of your past? Because I would imagine there was some, based on what you're talking about, some really hard things that you had to forgive people for. Absolutely. One thing is this is it's easy to forgive, like um, in certain circumstances, 
But sometimes it's an extremely hard thing to do, depending on the trauma that was created through uh, the circumstance that you go through. And what I mean by that is if I have a little sister who's seven years old and she has a friend who's eight years old and he pushes her down and pulls her hair. And then, um, you know, we're really upset with him right now. But in 20 years, I see him. He's doing great. My little sister's doing great. And we can look back and reminisce when he pulled her hair and pushed her down. That's an easy one to forgive. But if you take a person that's seven years old and another person rapes your mother, shoots her and kills her, that one is harder to forgive. So there's, there, are, there are levels of things and circumstances that you go through. And sometimes the thing that you need to forgive is bigger than you. If it's bigger than you, then with all of your capacity, because some of the things were bigger than me, there's an uh, invisible umbilical cord that's attached to a child and his mother. There's a, a, a role that a man plays in a child's life, whether it's a boy or a girl, that when it's absent, it debilitates that child. And so some of those things are a little harder to forgive. Uh, your parents as a child are your heroes. And when they fail you, you know, it's where were you when I was a child? Where were you? And some of these things we don't even realize are because they lie in our subconscious mind. And for me, what I had to do, I had to dig real, real deep and find out. I had to troubleshoot my life to find out what was creating the negativity and the, the toxicity that I was experiencing in my life. And a lot of it derived from my parents. Some of it derived from people after my parents. But the core happened with my parents. And it didn't mean, it doesn't mean that you don't love your parents. But what happens is whoever hurt you or whoever the culprit is, they create what I call a black hole in your life. And the only thing that can fit in that hole is that individual. And if you don't give them that space, nothing else will fill it. So we try to fill it with other things. Sometimes we try to fill it with drugs. We try to fill it with car. We try to fill it with money. We try to fill it with power, aggressiveness, trying to be something that we're not. But whoever caused that trauma, they're the only ones that can fill that hole. Nothing else will fit perfectly. And so you put them in that space and you forgive them, whatever it requires, realizing that your forgiveness for them, it doesn't make you less. It doesn't make you weak. Oftentimes, like when I was molested as a child, and I needed to forgive as an adult, thoughts went through my mind. And uh, thoughts like, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? Well, I'm thinking as an adult, thinking that I should have had an adult response when I was a child. And I didn't have that power. I didn't have that thought process as a child. And so I have to give myself grace and space to say I was just a child. I was a victim. Now that I feel this hurt and pain, it's hindering me from moving forward. So until I let this go, this is as much as I'm capable of growing. So if I don't forgive, I stunt my own growth. So I forgive that person, release that person. Everybody's body, everybody's physical body is telling a story. If you're carrying excess body fat around your waist, if you're carrying it on your belly, on your glutes, in different areas, even in the way you, you look, your posture, all of that, your body is telling a story. And what I do is I try to troubleshoot the story that your body is telling because we can misinterpret the story. Like a person is overweight and obese and we say, oh, that person, they just eat too much and they don't exercise. 
well, there are 75 reasons why we carry excess body fat. And so in the forgiveness part of it, if we don't forgive, it will even make you physically sick because that unforgiveness, unresolved issues releases cortisol in your body. And cortisol creates excess body fat, but it also creates inflammation, which can cause cancer, which can cause several different types of diseases. So in the forgiveness process, for me, the pain and hurt that I experienced was bigger than me. So I personally needed God to help me to forgive. I said this, I said, um, I remember forgiving my mother 999 times. On the thousandth time, I finally forgave her. And it looked like this, my friend. Whenever my mother would say, because I, I got back in contact with my mother after I got older, she would say things like, when you were a child, that would trigger me. When she said, when you were a child, it would trigger me and I would get angry. All of the hurt and pain that I went through rushed back as if it happened yesterday. I was triggered. And so my response, you either have an outward explosion, which releases cortisol, or you have an inward explosion, which releases even more cortisol because there's no expression with it. And she would say, when you were a child, and immediately what I would hear is you weren't there when I was a child. You have no right to talk about my childhood. I was raped when I was a child. I was beaten when I was a child. I was on the streets when I was a child. And you weren't there to help me. Don't talk about when I was a child. And I would just start trembling and shaking. So I was triggered. And if there's a trigger, there is a gun in the vicinity. And all you need is a bullet for an explosion. And that bullet can be just one word. And with her, it was when you were a child. So uh, I had to forgive, and it took God to help me to forgive that level of trauma. I appreciate you you sharing such clear and concise examples. And, you know, I think what's interesting, you're talking about needing God and this notion of some things that we need to forgive are, are bigger than us. And I, I, I agree, you know, wholeheartedly. I do think that there are things that, have either happened to us or that we've experienced or that we've gone through that just rationally can't make sense. And so we have to almost give that up to something larger than us, or we need something bigger than us to help us reconcile with that. And, and that's, you know, that can sort of seem frustrating to some people or maybe a, a, a quote unquote cop out. Um, I can hear myself, you know, in my early twenties having some resentment and anger towards that notion, but I felt it to be true and seemed to be true in my own life. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've learned about forgiveness along the way is this notion in the Lord's prayer, they say, forgive us our, our sins, our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I don't often quote the Bible, but I think yeah. what's interesting is a mentor of mine, I wrote about this in my book recently, but a mentor of mine, one day I was talking about this notion of like, how do I forgive myself for the things that I've done? And how do I forgive the other people that I just, I'm so angry at, I'm so bitter towards. And he quoted that and he said, you know, the original translation actually talked about forgiving the debt of others who trespassed against us and forgiving our debt. That's right. And this notion of when we have been harmed, you know, when we've been abandoned, when we've been abused, when we've been hurt in some capacity or betrayed, we do feel like there is a debt that's owed to us by somebody. And sometimes that debt we feel is from God. You know, it's like, how could you have done this? You know, how could you have allowed this? And so there's a reconciliation that I think is very helpful for some people 
I've found and for myself to kind of see what do I feel like is owed to me? You know, or do I feel like my dad owes me this or my, you know, my wife owes me this or my girlfriend owes me that or my business partner owes me this because they betrayed me. And for us to get very clear on what's the, what's the thing that we feel like we are owed or that we feel like we owe other people that, that we either need to let go of or reconcile with in some capacity in order for that forgiveness to be possible. And so I don't know if that resonates with you, but, but for me in my life and my journey, that has been incredibly helpful because I feel like that debt is the thing that produces the anger, you know, that produces the resentment and the hatred that we then carry around or the victimhood that we then carry around that, that prevents us from actually being able to forgive somebody else. And so have you found that to be true in your own life? Man, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, that is a great point. And another thing to add to that is, as I said earlier, your, your parents are like your heroes. So my whole thing was, I didn't ask to be here. I didn't ask to be here. You brought me here and you put me in this mess and then this is what you do. But the hardest people to forgive, the hardest people to forgive are the ones that you love most. Because when you love deep, you hurt deep. Mm. And when, you, when it's your mother and your father, that is a hard one because you love them so much. You know, there's a saying that love is really close to hate, you know. It's a fine line between love and hate. But uh, I hated God. I hated people because people around me, they ended up hurting me. And so in order to forgive, I had to realize that in unforgiveness, it's destroying me. And there is a debt that needed to be paid. And I had to release them from the debt. I had to release them from the debt. Otherwise, I can't move forward. Some of the clients that I've worked with, one, for example, was a pastor's wife in California. And she was angry because she had been raped and molested. And certain things would trigger her. Like if you, if her husband would shave at night, that meant he didn't want to scratch her face when he kissed her as they were coming together. Or if you wore Old Spice, that old uh, cologne, Mm -hmm. because the guy who raped her wore Old Spice. And so she would do certain things to keep from having a relationship with her husband. She would stay up really, really late and watch movies until they fell asleep. Or she would get in bed and start to... Pretend like she was asleep by snoring, but not really snoring. Or she would get in an argument on purpose so that they would be at odds with each other. But she did all of these things so she didn't have to have a relationship with her husband. He thought there was something wrong with him. He wasn't what she wanted. She wanted to be with somebody else. All of these things. But the real key to it is that he would trigger her and remind her of the rape. Mm. And the only thing that got her past this. I asked her this question. I said, how long will you sleep with two men? And she said, what? I would never sleep with two men. I said, every time you turn away from your husband, every time you pretend like you're asleep at night, you have two men in your bed. You have this man who raped you and you have your husband in the bed. And I said, just picture what that looks like. Is that fair to you? Even though that man who raped you is dead, he's still alive in your Mm -hmm. life. And she said, you know what? I don't care what it takes. I am going to forgive him. When she realized the repercussions of what she was doing and the harm that was taking place, she switched and changed her thought process and got free. Yeah, It's almost like we need to come into contact with and become aware of the consequences sometimes, not, not all the time, but 
the consequences of us carrying around this hatred, you know, and carrying around this anger and carrying around the lack of forgiveness in order to reconcile with it sometimes. I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole because one of the things that I really wanted to talk about is what fueled you to accomplish the things that you've accomplished. You know, like I think a lot of men look at, you know, these types of accolades and and the accomplishments that you've achieved and they think, wow, you must be so disciplined. And how did you become so disciplined? So I want to take a right turn a little bit into the territory of greatness, mastery, and quote unquote success, because I think a lot of guys, myself included for, for years, I really struggled with discipline. And when I look at what you've done and what you've achieved, I'm like, man, you must have been so disciplined. Like what, what was your secret? What is your secret? Like how did, how the heck did you do that? And so I just want to go down that pathway a little bit. How did you learn to channel some of the things you experienced in your life and become disciplined enough to win these types of competitions? And maybe you want to just give some light into how did you actually get into bodybuilding in the first place? Because I don't think we've, we've sort of tied those things together yet. So one is I wasn't extremely, extremely disciplined. I didn't think, but I was more disciplined than I thought because some of the things that I had gone through developed discipline, like running track, playing football, wrestling, boxing, all those things required discipline. But what gave me the discipline that I had is it wasn't the sport necessarily, bodybuilding wasn't the sport. It's the fact that I wanted to win. I wanted to win and I found out what it was, what was required for me to win. Well, those concepts and principles transfer into every area of your life if you allow it to. Uh, the same concepts that it requires to be a good track athlete is the same principles it requires to, to be a bodybuilder or to be a Christian or a good businessman. You know, it, it, those concepts are still the same to be a good husband. And one thing I say I do is I build champions. And more than anything, we have to believe in ourselves. And sometimes my job is to believe in you until you do believe in yourself. I wish I had one somebody that believed in me until I believed in myself, but I didn't have that person. But one of the goals I have is to be that person for as many people as I can be. Be that one person in their life that says, I believe in you until they believe in themselves. And developing discipline is something that is really, really important because unless you're consistent, unless you have discipline, unless you have passion and a goal, you're going nowhere. Mm. Uh, It's the difference between being a person that's a wanderer and a traveler. A wanderer, wherever he stops, he's made it. But a traveler has a round-trip ticket. He knows what time he has to be at the airport, what time that flight's taken off. He knows he, the business he has to take care of, what time that flight is going to bring him back home. So I am a traveler and no longer a wanderer. Wanderers get in trouble because whatever happens along the way, they pick it up. But a traveler is pointed and things that get you off course, you get rid of those things so you can stay on course. And that's what I learned how to do is just to stay on course, man. Uh, I learned how to, to be a visionaire because I'm more goal-oriented. So I am a visionaire before I become a millionaire. Mm, I love that. I have to see it before I actually achieve it. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense to have something that you're actually living into. Can you break down what 
an average day would look like when you were competing? Because I, I think one of the things that I would love to just paint the picture of is, you know, there's a certain level of mastery. There's a certain level of dedication that it takes to to achieve some of these things. And I, I would love for you to just like break down, like, what did it look like? What did you have to eat? What did you have to do? What did your workout regimen look like? Because uh, I think I think that can give some good context for for men in terms of like what what do some of these things take and was there certain sacrifices that you had to make? Absolutely, absolutely. One thing is um, when I won the Mister Universe the first time, I became Mister Universe a year before I actually stood on stage. I saw what it required. I closed my eyes and visualized what it would require for me to become Mister Universe. Now, I had to look at it from several different standpoints. What it was to be um, a teenage champion, because I started when I was a teenager, and then what it was to be a national champion. And Mr. Universe is a whole new animal. Well, one thing is I had to win my class, which was the short class, and I had to compete against the guys that were in the medium class, the tall class, and uh, the medium tall class, and to win the whole competition. So to do that in America is really an awesome thing. But to do it worldwide is like, can I really believe that I can do this thing? So I had to believe in myself that I could do it. So what I did is I looked at the last seven champions the year prior, and I looked at what they did. I looked at their regimen. I looked at their training, the way they ate. I looked at all of those things, what kind of family life. I mean, I dug in as deeply as I possibly could. And I made sure a year prior, I started calling myself Mr. Universe. What most people didn't understand is I was Mr. Universe before I ever stood on stage. Mm -hmm. I didn't become Mr. Universe when I stood on stage. It was well before. I remember close visualizing myself, then raising my hand saying, Ron Williams, natural Mr. Universe. I could feel the wind on my arm. I could see the crowd standing up and cheering and saying, oh, we love you. We've never seen anything like that before. I could see them giving me the paycheck. I could see myself walking out on stage. And once I saw that, I walked all the way back to right here and right now, put together a training regimen, diet nutrition program, supplement program, sleeping program, and then I moved forward. And everything that I saw, when they said, uh, short class, not your Mr. Universe, I raised my hand before they ever called my name. And then when they said, they put all of the winners together, and they said, overall winner, I had the audacity to raise my hand again. <laughs> and they said, Ron Williams. And I, I looked around and I said, I told you I was Mr. Universe. Nobody knew it but me and God. But now the whole world knows it. I became Mr. Universe a year before it ever happened. And I disciplined myself and put myself on a regimen that was a beeline to becoming Mr. Universe. I do that same thing now in my business. I do that same thing with the clients that I work with. I, I mean, that, that's been a principle that uh, is a gift that keeps on giving. I thought everybody did that. They could visualize what was going to happen. And for me, I think it became a thing because... That's all I really had was to close my eyes and see something mm. because everything, when I opened my eyes, it was ugly. But when I closed my eyes, I could imagine, you know, there were so many different possibilities that could take place. And so I liked closing my eyes and seeing with my eyes closed better than I did when they were open. And I learned that at a young age, man. So did you, 
did you have to, and I love that notion of the visualization, what it takes to actually accomplish this, seeing into the future of what you actually want to build and, and create. When you talk about the regimen, I mean, were you, and we don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but like, were you having to monitor exactly what you're eating? You know, what, what did some of that look like? Did you have to have a, a very specific like workout regimen, like, you know, six times a week at certain times? Like, was it that detailed or did you have more flexibility in it? Oh my goodness, man. Everything I put in my mouth, everything I put in my mouth from the morning, I mean, even at nighttime. I would drink a gallon of water a day until three weeks prior to the competition. And three weeks prior to the competition, I would drink two gallons of water a day. But then there's a reason for that. I'll explain it in just a second. But in the morning, I would get up and I would eat my breakfast. I would have, uh, in the middle of the night, I would have my supplements sitting on the toilet every night, probably about between 2.30 and 3 o'clock, I would wake up to go use the bathroom because I drink so much water. I had my protein drink sitting on the toilet. And when I was when I was using the bathroom, urinating, water was going out and fluid was going in at the same time. Uh, I would make sure that uh, in the morning, I would have an alarm go off. I would take my vitamins in the morning, uh, take my first meal. I would sleep every afternoon about 12 to 12.30, and I would take a supplement called tryptophan. It's what really makes you sleepy. I would take a nap uh, and take tryptophan, and tryptophan will cross the blood-brain barrier, and it releases your own natural growth hormone. So, And I would take arginine a half hour prior to working out because it releases natural growth hormone about 30 minutes into your workout. So all of my meals were regimented throughout the day. Uh, my training was regimented throughout the day. I trained twice a day, every day, and it was, it it was just real focused. And a lot of people thought in the younger years, I said, oh, you probably have lots of girlfriends. I said, you can't be Mr. Universe and have lots of girlfriends. It's not a thing. I had to focus and concentrate on the win. The night of the competition, this is what I did. The night of the competition, after they said, Ron Williams, natural Mr. Universe, everybody went out to celebrate except Mr. Universe. I would go out and train because now that I've got this title, the whole world is after me. You're not going to catch me. You're not going to track me down. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, man. I, lo- I love that. It like reminds me of like the Kobe Bryant moment when he was playing for the U.S. basketball team and they were trying to make a bit of a comeback. And as all the guys were going out to the club and going out partying, or no, all the guys I think were coming back from partying and they're walking into the hotel room and, and out comes Kobe Bryant at like, you know, five o'clock in the morning. All the guys are coming back. And he's coming out to train, right? Or he's coming back with them and he's going to train. Wow. And so I love that. I love that notion. I think it just speaks to the, the dedication and the commitment that you have to have. And there's something admirable about that. You know, I think that we as human beings, I, mean, I can only speak for, for being a man, but I think that a lot of men like really desire to push themselves in some capacity to see what they're capable of. And just like one clarification question, Mr. Natural Olympia. What's the difference between Mr. Natural Olympia and just Mr. Olympia? I, I don't actually know the difference between those. Well the, well, the difference is it's drug-free and you're tested throughout the year, uh, even when you're not competing. They test you through your hair follicles, through urine analysis and that type of thing to make sure that you're not taking any enhancements, any Got steroids it. or anything like that. Got it. And is, is something like 
TRT, like testosterone replacement therapy, is that is that considered to be a, a drug? Is that is that sort of like what's your take on that? I know that's sort of like a controversial thing, maybe, but I'm curious to get your your take on. Is that something that you think men can benefit from? Should you? Shouldn't use? Where where does that stand within the bodybuilding sphere? Well, in the bodybuilding world, that would that would disqualify you as a natural competitor. Okay, if you take took any supplements or anything like that, that would enhance. And 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 the testing regiment is is IOC, it's Olympic testing regiment, and um, it it really is a blessing because you you would find a lot of people that would take steroids and then try to compete in the natural and beat the natural competitors. But many of them, so many of them got caught. Even the ones that didn't get caught, you can look at them and you can see the difference. You can see in their skin, their head shape. I mean, and you can tell just about who is and who's not. But they they catch the majority of them and they're in the Hall of Shame (laughs) instead of the Hall of Fame. And they can never compete in natural bodybuilding again. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. Well, I'd love to just close off on this notion of mastery. And, you know, I think, for me, externally looking in at some of the things that you've done and, and achieved, you certainly embody somebody who has reached a certain level of mastery. And I'm wondering if you can speak to what mastery requires, you know, what you've learned through your, through your years of work, of success, of failure, of hardship, of what mastery requires of us as human beings. We have the ability to develop this thing called mastery in our lives but we make it harder than what it is. And sometimes we're trying. And like I say, with, the, with myself personally, and with a lot of the people, I find myself in every area watching where I am trying to do something. Uh, last night, this was something that, uh, that I did even last night. I was on the stair mill. It was relatively late last night. And um, I wanted to get through this. I didn't feel like doing it, but I knew I had to do it. Uh, so I got on the stair mill and I was grinding and I was trying to get through this. And I looked at myself. I said, who, what are you doing? This is not who you are. Just relax. You got 30 minutes. Just do it. Sometimes trying makes it harder than what it is. And then emotionally and subconsciously, you remember how hard you were trying to do something and it becomes something that um, that's repulsive to you mm. because you have to try so hard. Sometimes don't even think about it. Nike got it right. Just do it. And I was, you know, I can do hard things. One, you know, it doesn't have to be easy. It doesn't have to be hard. It just has to be done. And so, and I use this example. I, I, I say, try to sit down. <laughs> it's harder to try to sit down than it is to sit down. And uh, I give an example of how to do that. I'm trying to sit down, never really accomplishing it, when all you have to do is, boom, sit down. So when I'm doing cardio, don't just try to do it. Just relax and just do it. If it's a a job or task that I need to complete, don't try to do it and try to do it. Just do it. Just get it done. Because it leads to procrastination if you don't. Ah, I hate doing that. No, just do it. Don't even think about it. It needs to be done. Just do it. Mm. And some of the things, if we just do it, we'll find out that it was easier than what we thought. And when we look at that person that's on stage, whether it's best business or best bodybuilder or winning a track meet, the thing is that we don't realize is what it required for them to get there. We look at them and we say, I'm probably as smart as him. I'm probably as athletic as him. But there's something that he's doing in the dark that you don't see. And that's mastery. 
I like that because I think in, in some ways it's like surrendering into the process, you know, surrendering into the, the doing that needs to happen and the thing that needs to get done. And, you know, there, there is a difference between exerting, overexerting, trying to do something versus just doing it, right? Just I'm going to get up in the morning and I put my gym clothes on. I'm going to go to the gym versus I'm going to try and get up and go to the gym tomorrow. It's almost like it creates natural resistance. And so I, I appreciate that <laughs> distinction in, in the triangle. L- listen, Ron, we, we have to wrap up for today. I love that, uh, that message. For everyone that's out there that wants to get a deeper sense into who you are and the work that you're doing, where can they find you? And we'll have all the links for this in the show notes, but where can they find you uh, and follow along with your journey and, and your work and, and what you're putting out in the world? A couple of things is ronwilliamschampion.com, ronwilliamsministries.com. And I, I do something new. It's called wisdomthattransforms.com. Uh, that's just a three-minute teaching on uh, biblical concepts that really helps you to understand uh, some things, how to, how to move forward, how to actually become a champion. I love that. I love that. Maybe, uh, maybe next time we can talk about the champion mindset, what it means to be a champion. But I, I love that your website is Ron Williams Champion. I feel like I need a good name to put on the end of my, like Connor Beaton something. You know, I love that. <laughs> I'm not a champion yet. I haven't won any titles. But I, I just, I love that. So ronwilliamschampion.com. And we'll have the links for all those in the show notes. Ron, thank you so much for joining me. And I'm looking forward to having another conversation with you in the future. And for everyone that's out there, if you enjoyed this conversation, definitely man it forward. Share it with somebody in your life that you know will enjoy it. And uh, maybe have a conversation about it. Maybe there's some interesting concepts, ideas in this episode that you can converse with the people in your life about and hold one another accountable. So thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for joining us. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. 